a lot of the young voters believe that Peter will be for them. It's a representation of the new model of leadership. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. On February 25th, Nigeria will hold federal elections. Nigeria is the largest democracy in Africa and one of the largest multi-party democracies in the world. Since Nigeria's transition from military to civilian rule in 1999, presidential elections have been competitive, with the outcome respected by the losing candidate, even when the incumbent president lost. The current incumbent, Mohamedou Buhari, is respecting term limits and stepping aside, leaving an open field. In recent history, Nigerian politics has been dominated by two parties. But with about one month to go before elections, there is a surprising third-party candidate, Peter Obi, who is leading in the polls. As my guest, Cynthia Mbamalu, explains, Obi's strong showing so far is a consequence of the growing relevance of young voters. Cynthia Mbamalu is director of programs at Yaga Africa, a civil society organization that works to promote democracy in Africa. In our conversation, she explains how and why young people in Nigeria may determine the outcome of these consequential elections. We kick off discussing the major candidates before having an in-depth conversation about the youth vote including how a protest movement against police brutality inspired a youth political awakening. The 2023 Nigeria elections are arguably the most consequential global elections happening this year, and this conversation will give you the context you need to understand the elections as they unfold in February. Now, here is my conversation with Cynthia Mbamalu, Director of Programs at Yaga Africa. (music) 
Before we discuss the somewhat surprising candidacy of the third party candidate, Peter Obi, I'd love to have for you to introduce to listeners the two other main contenders who are the more conventional candidates. Let's start with Bola Tanubu, who I take it is something of the anointed successor of the current president, Mohamedou Buhari, and his ruling All Progressives Congress Party, the APC Party. What has Tanubu's campaign been like so far? Tanubu. First, he's not a new name in Nigeria's politics. He's been quite active in our politics and he was a one-time governor of Lagos State. So Lagos State is in southwest Nigeria. It's known as a hub of entertainment in Nigeria, as you'd have it. So Tinubu has his movement. They are called the Batify because his name is Bola Ahmed Tinubu. So B-A-T and you have Batify would have that. But he's always had an interest in running for the presidency. He's beyond just being a one-time governor in Nigeria. He's known as a big money bag. So he's one of the foremost, I mean, rich politicians in Nigeria. And for the incumbent president's election in 2015 and 2019, a lot of reporters indicated that Tinubu's financial support was quite instrumental in getting this incumbent president elected. So it was no-brainer to have the president anoint or win sent identify with Tinubu as a candidate for the party. His campaign has been ongoing at least across different parts of the country. Um, in fact, we are currently Yaga Africa, the group I work with. In our pre-election observation, we have campaigns by the APC um, reported from about 80% of our local government areas in the country. And Nigeria has about 774 local government area. So that's the third tier, lower level of government. I mean, the APC is the ruling party. So it's not surprising that Tinubu has some level of followership and for some reason has the resources to lead campaigns across different parts of the country. Yeah, he's a wealthy, well-known politician that has the power of incumbency in the sense that his ruling party is the one currently controlling the reins of government. And he is being challenged by another very well-known name in Nigerian politics, Abubakar Atiku of the People's Democratic Party. I take it he's something of like an always the bridesmaid, never the bride. He has run (laughs) many times, never succeeded, and he's getting on in age. So this is his last opportunity, it would seem. Yes, he is 76 years old. That's young for American politics. say that. <laughs> but yeah, so you could imagine his level of, I don't want to use the term desperation, but for Atiku, I feel like he believes that this is his last opportunity because no one knows what the next elections would be like. But he's run consistently. and um, He was a one-time vice president in Nigeria. He comes from northeast Nigeria. Uh, um, Adamawa state is in northeast Nigeria. His state is one of the states ravaged by insurgency and terrorism in Nigeria. But PDP is the major opposition, at least since 2015, the PDP, People's Democratic Party, has been the major opposition. And so he has that platform of a party that is also popular and known as a major opposition and also has a reasonable number of seats in the national parliament, also controls some states. He also has a movement, they call them the Articulate, from Article, obviously. So you have those who are articulating, moving you have people across different parts of the country also part of this campaign. The challenge with Atiku at the moment is that the PDP also 
pass is intra-party conflict, which is yet to be resolved. So he's not as confident as he was in 2019 when he also contested for president under the, um, the PDP as his party. However, he's hopeful. We've gotten reports of campaigns going on in a large percentage of local government areas in the country. And I'm using local government because that's the lowest level of governance. And anyone that can go to a large number of local governments shows some level of our popularity. So for many years now, Nigeria has had a, a vibrant multi-party democracy. And if this were like normal times, either Bola Tinubu of the ruling APC or Abu Bakar Atiku of the opposition PDP, one of those two men would be president. But this is not yeah. a, a normal year. You have this insurgent candidate, Peter Obi. Who is he and what explains his surprising candidacy? You know, we're speaking in the middle of January. He's currently leading in the polls that I've seen. Yes, he is, surprisingly so, um, because, you know, um, in multi-party democracy, there's a tendency for two-party dominance. And we've had that for a long period of time until the emergence of P2B or the obedience movement. That's also his followers call themselves the obedience. Now, P2B was a one-time governor in Anambra state. Now, Anambra is a state in southeast Nigeria, and he was a one-time governor um, in the state's He's also been in politics for a while. So in 2019, he was the running mate for um, Atiku, Abubakar Atiku, um, when Atiku ran for the president in 2019. He's been in the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, for a while. However, 2020, during the party primaries, he already could tell that he wouldn't be accepted as a party's candidate. Because first, P2B is not as rich as Atiko or does not control the kinds of resources Atiko controls. However, this was happening at a time where a lot of Nigerian youth felt that they had no option when it comes to voting and when it comes to voting choices presented before them. If you remember that 2022 or just some few years ago, in 2020, there was this popular NSAS movement, protests, which shut down some cities where young people went to the street to protest against police brutality and what have you. Just to emphasize that point, these were huge protests, yes. youth-led protests against police brutality. There was this notorious police unit, SARS, that would basically like shake down and brutalize mostly young Nigerian men. And you had these really mass movements, mass protests that came on the heels of the Black Lives Matter protests in, here in the United States and the George Floyd protests, but took their own unique twist in Nigeria in the forms of protesting against police brutality. And you're saying this is like the genesis of this yes. now really vibrant youth political awakening. Exactly, because the NSAS was like an awakening to young people. We had major cities in the country shut down literally by these young protesters on the street for two weeks until, I mean, the government, state securities was deployed to dispel the protesters. But it inspired young people to get interested in the elections. So what we saw post the protest was a high increase in youth registration as voters. So you had a high number of first-time voters registering to vote. I saw a statistic uh, as I was researching this topic to interview you that there have been 10 million new voters registered 
ahead of the elections, 84% of which are people under the age of 34. Yes, the numbers reduced to 9.5 million because of the cleaning of the register. But within that number, young voters under 35-year-olds were the majority. So it was a revolution of young people, basically. And for them, getting registered to vote also meant identifying a candidate that best represented their interest. So it was not surprising the moment Pitobi decided to move from the People's Democratic Party and move to the Labour Party, because now Labour Party is becoming a popular party, not because of the party itself, but because of the candidacy of Pitobi. Because Pitobi, during the party primaries, realized the party primaries would not be transparent, I wouldn't give him a fair chance to contest. And he decided to move to another party. Labour Party was the closest party he could identify with, which had some level of representation in the legislative houses. And so it was easier for him to work with Labour Party. But the moment Peter Obi moved, it seemed like there was a shift within the political space in Nigeria. Because all of a sudden, young Nigerians who ordinarily cared very little about elections, were going on social media, organizing and mobilizing themselves to support P2B. So if you follow the reports on registration, 2022, towards the end of voter registration, we had a surge of younger people struggling to get registered because that was around the time P2B became the candidate for the Labour Party. So you have younger people who are his supporters and who are deploying their resources across the country to mobilize voters for his election. So what is it about Peter Obi that makes him so attractive to younger voters? Is it a personality thing or does he have specific campaign platforms that deliberately are meant to attract this surge in youth voters to his candidacy? I would say the first thing was Peter Obi seemed to be the alternative to the old order. And at 61 years old, he's sprightly compared to the other two. That would be the second. He's the younger of the other candidates. So Atiku is 76. Bola Tinubu is 70 years old. So he's younger than the others. And not just young in age, but in his mannerism, in the way he engages, in the way he projects himself. He projects himself as a younger candidate who connects with young people. And so that has been a major attraction for young people. But I think one thing that has so far been his message, he's also projecting the message of going to contest based on his capacity and competence, not necessarily based on the monies he would be giving out. And this is key for our elections because Elections in Nigeria is largely determined by the highest bidder in most cases. And for younger people, and this is not just in, I think, a lot of countries, you have younger voters questioning the whole idea of democracy and majority votes. If money is the major determinant, then can you really say it's a fair play? So it seems like Peter Obi just came with an alternative of, I want you to vote for me because of who I am and because of what I can deliver on not because of how much money I have or how much money I can give to you. So that message has so far resonated with young people. And I'm in a country with high rates of corruption. You see, his message is also around, I would fight corruption and I would listen and learn from you. That's speaking to young people. And I think that has been 
the exciting thing about him for young voters, for a lot of young voters, if you go on social media to follow the conversation, I'm not saying we don't have young people supporting the other candidates, but honestly, the obedience movement is driven by majority youth. And you see the conversations on social media. A lot of the young voters believe that PTOB for them is a representation of the new model of leadership, something that they can connect with, someone they can hold accountable for his actions and not someone who is so far away from them. Unlike the popular names, you know, Atiku has been here for a long while and Tinubu has been here for a long while and both of them are reasonably powerful as politicians. It sounds like as you're describing it to me that Obi's messaging has been very, very resonant among young voters. He hasn't necessarily put out a list of specific policies that are enticing to young voters, but rather it's his whole persona, his whole messaging, his whole campaign strategy is around presenting this alternative. Yeah, so he has his manifesto, right? But the other parties also have their manifestos. Just listening to him speak, I actually do believe that there's a lot of work that's still required for better appreciation of the issues highlighted in his manifesto. So if we talk around manifesto, the three parties have presented their manifesto and their policy direction or policy ideas for the elections. And I I do not think it's necessarily about the policies they are projecting, because a lot of the conversation is about the personality of Peter B and his messaging rather than on, okay, what, what if you ask most of the obedience, what is Pitobi's policy on education, for instance, or what is his policy on health? A lot of them are yet to articulate or understand what is articulated in his manifesto. So there's a lot around his personality and the messaging of it's time for an alternative, it's time for politics around individuals with capacity and with integrity as he projects himself, which, I mean, like I said, he is leading in the polls. However, I know Nigerian's elections is beyond majority vote because you also need the spread, which is where a lot of older politicians feel comfortable that they could still compete with him at the polls, regardless of the youth vote. Why? What do you mean it's about the spread as opposed to majority? To win a presidential elections in Nigeria, you need to win the highest number of votes cast. However, you're also required by the constitution to win at least 25% of the votes cast into third of the states and the federal capital territory. Nigeria has 36 states with the federal capital territory, that is 37. So you need to win at least 25% of votes cast into third of 37. And the idea for this is Nigeria is a diverse and multicultural, multi-ethnic and religious nation. It's possible to win a majority vote without having the spread, but then it wouldn't represent a presidency of the generality of the people, which is why you are required to win at least two thirds of the states in the country. That way, you're not limiting your campaign to one region. So the country has six geopolitical zones, the North Central, North East, North West, South, South, South East, South West. We have different states broken into these geopolitical zones. There's a lot of regional politics in Nigeria's um, in our political space. So the idea within the constitution is for any president to emerge, that president should secure a majority votes and should have the constitutional spread. 
And that probably helps to explain why typically if there is a Christian president of Nigeria, they have a Muslim vice president. When there's a Muslim president, they have a Christian vice president. That's a, typically the, the history. Yes, yes, that explains that. Typically, yeah, the history until the recent, you know, we have the APC's candidate, that's um, All Progressive Congress, Bola Tinubu and his running mate are both Muslims. It's been a major issue because the practice is to avoid a Muslim-Muslim ticket. So you either have Muslim-Christian and Northern-Southern balance to ensure there's better representation. So... Young people are a key voting block heading into this election. Young people are also demographically the majority of people in Nigeria. I'd love to have you just kind of discuss like the state of Nigerian youth. I take it, for example, that unemployment among young people is just astronomically high. What are the challenges facing young people right now? And how might those challenges manifest themselves in young people's voting preferences ahead of these elections? The first is, like you mentioned, is high youth unemployment currently. Not just youth unemployment, so the growing insecurity, which is multidimensional in the country, has also impacted on youth development. So we have parts of the country where insecurity has crippled economic activities. A lot of young people are entrepreneurs, meaning that for young people who thrive in those informal sectors in these respective states with insecurity issues, that they've been out of any form of business for a long period of time. And specifically, this is many of the northern states of Nigeria that are still amid that like Boko Haram ISIS insurgency. But not just that. So we have states in the Northeast with the terrorist and insurgency attacks, like you have the Boko Haram. So states like Adamawa, Borenu, Yobe in the Northeast. But we have the bandit attacks ongoing currently. So a high level of banditry that has displaced several communities in states in Northwest Nigeria. So there are communities in Northwest that the citizens are displaced or every economic activities are currently crippled. But it's beyond just the north, not west. In north central, we also have the header farmer clash um, conflict that we've had for a period of time now. But in addition to that, it's also bandits. So ban- the bandits have, for some reason, moved from the northwest to the north central. Now, in the southern part of the country, the southeast currently, we have communities in states like Imo, Anambra. These are states in southeast Nigeria, which is the region Pitobi comes from where there's been a prolonged agitation for secession by the independent people of Biafra movement, the IPOP. So they've had this prolonged agitation for a period of time, but it has taken a new dimension where you have communities attacked and people killed at will. There's no business on Mondays. The groups, they are more militant in nature now, and they've imposed a Monday compulsory stay at home. So on Mondays, schools don't open businesses don't open, everything is shut down, and people who break that rule are punished, their businesses are burnt down. Now, so this is the current insecurity that we have in the southeast part of Nigeria. So beyond that, you have the issues of unknown assailants who just go to communities, murder people, and catch away with their property. So we are going to the next election with multidimensional levels of insecurity. And all of this have impacted youth development. A lot of young businesses had to shut down 
and you've had more increase in migration, people moving within states, but also immigration. You have this challenge. And a lot of young people believe that if you address issues of insecurity, then they have more confidence to build their businesses and grow. It has increased level of poverty, unemployment. Education is big for young people because the tertiary institutions in 2020 were shut down for almost a year. Um, the schools were on strike and a lot of students were out of school. In fact, they had different levels of strike. There was in 2020, 2021, and then recent 2022. So they've lost over one academic session. The strikes got called off last 2022 by the third quarter of 2022. So you could imagine a lot of students also frustrated with the state of education in the country, especially the public education. So for young people, there are several issues that would influence the way they vote in these elections. On this question of security, is Peter Obi saying anything that's radically different than the other two candidates in terms of what he would do to address security concerns that, as you just described, are disproportionately impactful on young people? Well, he's made a lot of statements on security. However, I've listened to him speak on different platforms. I'm not very convinced with his statements on security in Nigeria. He needs to do a lot more research to understand the security challenges because most of his commitments are around would provide better resources, would go to Israel, you know, a lot of those conversations. But our security challenges are a bit more localized and our context is a bit more different. It's multidimensional. And I feel that, yes, he's speaking on security. That's one of his messages I would address in security once I become a president. But is the how? That's for me. The question for him to answer is the how, providing a concrete plan on this is steps I would take in the first 10 months or first six months in office to address insecurity in Nigeria. Because for me, that is a more convincing response that would inspire confidence. So we're speaking nearly a month before the February 25th federal elections in Nigeria. In the coming few weeks, are there any indicators or inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how this election season may unfold? For me, the first would be the response to the insecurity we'll have, because currently the Electoral Commission is also facing a major challenge of its ability to conduct election in every part of the country. Because if we don't have adequate security, it means that and the Electoral Commission would have major difficulties in conducting elections in some parts of the country. That would also affect participation, especially youth participation, because if we don't have adequate security, a lot of young people would not be confident to come out and vote just because people don't want to risk their lives just because they want to vote in an election. So that for me is major, the response to insecurity from now to the elections, especially because we're seeing attacks on the Electoral Commission's facilities. There have been reports of the offices in some states burnt down with election materials in it, and personnel of the Electoral Commission attacked, and some of them kidnapped. So this is a worrying thing. If that is addressed, I believe a lot of voters would be more confident to turn out to vote. The other, for me, um, is the quality of voter education and voter mobilization. We have a trend where you have a lot of young people indicate interest before elections. 
when it comes to election, we recorded low turnout. The 2019 elections, we had, for presidential elections, we had 35% voter turnout. And youth turnout was 28% in that election. And in 2019, young voters made up 51.1% of the registered voters. So you could imagine for an election where young voters were almost half the population, only 28% of that number turned out to vote. Meaning that for these elections, youth registration currently is at 39.6.5%. That's the comprehensive list for ahead of the elections. But the major determinant of a change in the outcome of elections would be dependent on young people mobilizing themselves and coming out to vote on elections day. That for me would be the game changer if we increase youth turnout in the elections. That is the only way the outcome would be influenced. If not, we'll still stick with the usual outcomes that we've had in our previous um, elections. And I think the third and the last thing that would determine how these elections would go would be the commitment of the president to leave a legacy of credible elections. An incumbent has the power to ensure the state institutions work for the people and not for his party. So the president currently needs to make very convincing and bold statements to Nigerians that he would be neutral in these elections and he would ensure that the state institutions, so the security agencies, the electoral commission, that they would all work to serve the needs of the people and not the needs of the all progressives Congress. Because a lot of citizens are a bit apprehensive that the security agencies may be deployed against opposition. We've seen this happening in some states where opposition have major challenges campaigning or having the activities and the state institutions that are deployed to oppress them during the campaign. So we need the president to put in his speech and his body language to commit to a legacy of credible elections that allows fair competition. Is there anything else you wanted to add, like a question I didn't ask or a point you wanted to make? I think the only question, because we've had conversations around a possible runoff, what would happen if no candidate secures the majority of votes or the required spread? And this is because now we have a P2B who has a possibility to share or to affect the votes of the two parties. Before, you could easily have just two parties contesting. One party usually gets the spread. We've never had three major parties in a sense. And a lot of us, we've gone back to our constitution to read back, to understand the provisions on runoff, because this could be a likelihood in these elections. There's a likelihood that the insecurity in some parts of the country, elections may not hold in some communities, meaning that the parties will be contesting for a smaller geographical spread and votes. Some of these dynamics is a likelihood no party would, on first ballot, win the required 25% of votes into third majority, which would mean a runoff. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.